You are in the ring with Hector Galon, seven-time national boxing champion turned nonprofit president and CEO. Hector knocks out the big issues facing social services today with high-impact leaders from around the U.S. In the Ring is a creation of Lutheran Social Services of Wisconsin and Upper Michigan and is produced by No Studios. And now, here's Hector Colon. Hello, 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 and welcome to In the Ring with Hector Colon, the show that gets real about the challenges facing the social services sector and the people we serve. We take on these issues with people at the center of these challenges, true champions who are willing to get into the ring with me. I hope these conversations spark awareness and inspiration to shift our sector from struggle to triumph. You can check out all of my interviews at lsswis.org slash in the ring. Okay, as my coach Shorty used to say, let's go champ. <laughs> in the ring with me today is Meg Kissinger, journalist, mental health advocate, and new author of the book, While You Are Out. Meg is a Pulitzer Prize finalist, recipient of several prestigious awards for her research and writing on America's mental health system. She has a 35-year career reporting for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, and currently she is a trainer at DART uh, Center of Journalism and Trauma at Columbia University. She's a con trusted consultant uh, for Frontline, ProPublica, The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and more. And her book, While You Were Out, released in September of this year. Meg, thank you so much for being in the ring with me here today. Thank you, Hector. I love those moves. I'm, I got I to gotta watch you do that so I can be light on my feet. We're going to do some bobbing <laughs> and weaving and rolling with the punches on this one. I, 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 think, I think that's where we're headed. Uh, that's great. Okay, so are you ready for round yes, one? Yes, let's bring it on. So, Meg, I want to sh share a little context about our, our relationship and how we worked together when we were at Milwaukee County. I, I remember... When I came in, prior to me coming in, you know, people were dying in, in the mental health complex, multi-million dollar deficits, a lack of community-based services. There were some real challenging stories, and it was a real challenging time. And I remember coming in, you know, feeling like, okay, give me some time when we're turning this around. And um, But I felt the pressure yeah. uh, of, of your writing. So I want to thank you oh. because I believe that that pressure— uh, was necessary to move a system that was totally outdated uh, to a system that's more community-based, that has better quality of care, and does better uh, for people struggling uh, with, with mental illness. So I want to thank you for that. Oh, Hector, thank you. I really appreciate that. I know it's tough. You know, I was up there on the bully pulpit, and I was I was throwing some jabs. Oh, man, I even <laughs> got a couple low blows there. <laughs> I was throwing some jabs. And, yeah. and um, I think I, I know our our mission was the same to provide good quality care and help to people who struggle by virtue of their mental illness. So uh, anyway, I think I think we uh, certainly we we've moved the needle, and that's awesome. You were gracious to share what has happened, uh, you know, under your uh, tutelage and and since about turning. The mental health system around in Milwaukee County, and I'm I'm so great grateful for that. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think we were so far behind, but clearly now I would say we're a national model. And thank you for your contributions 
uh, in making that happen. So first question. Yeah. So what compelled you to write this book? Well, uh, I, I'm a storyteller and I spent so many years writing about the problems with mental health in America. And that came from the most personal place because I'm the fourth oldest of eight kids to a family. We grew up in the Chicago area and um, our parents both uh, struggled with their mental health and uh, one by one, uh, each of us did in our own ways. And I lost a brother and a sister to suicide. So I knew very personally what it looks like when mental health is not treated adequately. Um, But mostly what happens when we are ashamed to talk about the mental illness among us. So after all those years of writing about other people and what they went through, um, I decided it's time to turn the notebook around on myself and really tell about what that was like. I wanted people, I wanted readers to understand what it was, what that felt like and what it, what it was to, to be in a family that had a tremendous amount of love. We're a lot of fun. Our family's a lot of fun, but there was a lot of heartache and sorrow. And I was hoping that I could show what that was like uh, and, and, and with the idea that it would motivate them to insist on the kind of change that I think you affected uh, at Milwaukee County. Yeah, thank you so much for, uh, for sharing your story. Uh, it's a powerful story. You know, I knew a little bit. Uh, there was some uh, mention of your story in, in articles in the past, but I got a deeper understanding of what your family was like and and the struggles you faced um, and, and, you know, the stigma uh, around mental health and individuals not being willing to really be open about it. So I want to congratulate you and thank you because I know you gave a lot of people hope. You gave them hope and, and you've inspired them to share their own stories. And so thank you for that. Well, thanks, Hector, especially since I think I gave a lot of people indigestion with my <laughs> journalism. But um, yes. but, but I, that was what I was after was mm-hmm. uh, making it safe for people to talk about what it's like to live with mental illness. And um, again, trying to bust that shame. Mm-hmm. Because shame is really toxic. There's really nothing good that comes out of being ashamed. And people don't ask to have mental illness. And it's not because you were brought up poorly. It's not your parents' fault. It's, it's not your fault. You, Ill, illness is an illness. I, I had breast cancer. I didn't ask for breast cancer. My brothers and sisters had bipolar. They didn't ask for their bipolar. Mm-hmm. You know, for those that haven't read the book uh, thus far, what are your top three takeaways for them? What 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 are they going to get out of this book, and how is this going to help them? Uh, wow, is that you are a boxer? I have to say, <laughs> land on my feet like you. Okay, so my top three. Well, number one, again, uh, we are all human beings. We are all broken from time to time. We need each other. Um, that number two would be that mental illness is like any other kind of illness. Uh, and needs that kind of care and support. Um, and yeah, number three is pay attention and be there. Be your brother and sister's keeper. Don't be afraid to have these conversations about what it's like for them and uh, or what it's like for you if you're struggling with your own mental health. Um, have be, be, be courageous enough or be uh, humble enough to ask for help. I think that's great. You know, just this 
just lack of parity issue of mental health with primary health, I think is is a big challenge. I, I feel like it's getting better, but it's stories like yours and inspiration uh, like you, they're going to encourage more people uh, to talk about this and, and ultimately effectuate uh, more change. So uh, thank you again for that. You know, in your own words, I, I read in your book a little bit about, you know, how your family dealt with certain things and maybe they didn't want to talk about, uh, you know, mental health and, you know, there was stigma, right? So in your own words, talk about stigma today and, and what you're seeing across the country. Has it gotten better? Is it getting worse? What sure. are your thoughts? Sure. So um, I first want to talk about the word stigma, which is used a lot and I use it a lot as well. I'm starting to kind of move away from that word and switching it to discrimination. And here's why. Yeah. So Tom Insel, who was the director of the National Institute of Mental Health, just wrote a great book of his own that came out last year. And he talks about that difference. So uh, stigma coming from the word stigmata, which was the old markings of Christ. And um, it's meant to, sh to uh, show the stain of uh, humanity. So that, I think, when we, when we use stigma, it, it suggests that the person with mental illness is in some way different. Uh, whereas, I think to, in order to propel change, we need to think about uh, the discrimination against people with mental illness. So, um, so that, anyway, that's the word that I use. But what I see is we are now so much more willing to talk about mental illness within our families, within ourselves, within our families, than we were back in the day when I was coming up. Uh, it's on billboards, you know, uh, it's on baseball broadcasts, there's, there's ads uh, to get help if you're not feeling well. I love that. I'm so excited to know that people are more willing to talk about that. The problem is there's not enough delivery of system. So, so yes, yeah, somebody might be having a, a panic attack or feeling un, mentally unwell, but then access to care is a, is a big problem. So I'm, a, I'm very hopeful that we are discussing mental health more fully, um, but I, there's still a lot, a lot of work to do to get those people the help that they need. I agree. And we'll get a little bit more into that in, in these next two rounds. You know, I wanted this this stigmata, uh, the way you describe that. Yeah. Wow, that that's interesting. I never really thought about it from that perspective, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I see why now you feel more comfortable talking about it from the perspective of discrimination, which really, that's what it is, yeah. right? Yeah, I think what that does then is it shifts the burden from the person who's struggling with mental illness to the person who is treating them unfairly. So denying them housing or a job or or healthcare. I mean, even when we make the distinction of primary care and mental health care, I would argue that mental health care is primary care. And so why do you need special uh, approval by your insurance company? Why do they cap the the visits that you might uh, that you might have? They wouldn't do that if you're getting chemotherapy or infusions. Great. Uh, thank you for that insight. We're going to get into more of this uh, in round two, we're going to discuss our shared history of addressing mental health in Milwaukee County, examine what's working, and and dive into the ongoing challenges that they're still struggling with. But first, a word from our sponsor. Supporting your employees 
is more than a paycheck and 401k. It's just a fact. People today are at a higher risk of experiencing mental illness, housing insecurity, and substance abuse. Do you know the health of your employees, your communities? How can you step up your benefits to better address their well-being? M3 Insurance helps businesses see beyond basic benefits and support employees where they live. It's a meet-them-where-they-are approach that LSS delivers to their clients every day. M3 and LSS offer real solutions to now commonplace realities that strengthen employees and inspire communities to thrive. Test your employee benefit strategy now by going to m3ins.com. All right. You ready for round two? I'm ready. Come on, champ. <laughs> Ooh, here we go. In your view, what components make up the mental health care system in America? Uh, I even take exception with the word system because I, I think a system is, well, I know a system, the definition of a system are entities that work together. And so much about what happens with mental health care in America does not work together. So uh, I think it starts with uh, looking out for one another. So you, you're living with somebody who maybe has bipolar and is having an, a manic episode. Uh, what do you do? So we need to be able to talk to people about how to uh, how to address that tense situation. That family is part of that system. So the family is, a, is primary, I think. Uh, and then we have uh, the mental health providers, of which we just talked about. There's an inadequate number to uh, to meet the demand that's out there. Uh, so often, police are involved because that's the default for a lot of people. If there's a somebody's acting out and there's behavior that is unruly or um, frightening, uh, the default is to the police. So police are brought in. And then you get the court system, um, the the insurance industry. Again, um, they are often the arbiters of whether or not somebody can access care and how much care they can receive. So there's I I have seen in my reporting, and I know as a sister and a daughter of people who have been in great need of mental health care, that there is a lack of coordination, and, and we are doing better at that, but we need more, more coordination. Absolutely. And we also need to have, I think, a more proactive system that focuses more on prevention or early intervention. Yes. Because if you think about our system today, you wait for a crisis to happen. Yes. Maybe the onset of a mental illness at 17, 18 years old, or you wait for one of the teenagers to penetrate the criminal justice system, and then you try to intervene, and it's too costly. Right. And and yeah. it's too late most times. Definitely. So, Hector, I think one of the um, stories that I, I would consider the hallmark of what my reporting for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel was on emergency detentions, and what we did was looked, uh, we drilled down on how people were so often brought into emergency care. So that's just that very situation mm -hmm. that I was describing earlier with where somebody at home is having a an episode and the, the person, the mother, father, sister, whatever, calls the police and off that person goes in handcuffs in the squad car 
to the emergency detention center. Uh, and it's a really awful way to begin care. Uh, it's not gentle and it's, um, it's just, it's very fraught. So back in the old days, Milwaukee County, you know, was identified as having the highest percent of emergency detentions. That's flipped around now. I'm so happy to know, but, um, that's a classic example of 80% of the resources were spent on providing emergency care where really in an ideal world, it would be the opposite. You would have so much of a focus on downstream, you know, I should say upstream. So getting to kids, uh, from infancy on, uh, and certainly more mental health pro programs in the schools, just something long before somebody picks up that phone and calls the police. Absolutely. And you mentioned schools. I, I've shared this in previous episodes as well as our school center mental health program, which gets these kids early, but not only the kids, but their families. We have a family coach that looks at the broader social determinants of health because the better mom is doing, dad, brother, cousin, who's ever in that household, the better that child is going to do. So thank you for bringing that up. It is something we've discussed in previous episodes as well. That's great. And Hector, I just want to say that, um, again, back in the day when my brother and sister were first starting to show real signs of their mm -hmm. mental illness, my mom and dad were really kind of held uh, at arm, not were kind of, they were held at arm's length. And, and families were often vilified by the mental health providers as, again, the cause. And uh, precious little information shared. My brother Danny, uh, who ended up dying in the late 1990s, well, at one time was incarcerated. Um, and he was being held in the forensic hospital affiliated with the Cook County Jail. I called them to tell them information to let them know that Danny had bipolar illness, he'd been diagnosed with that, that his sister had died by suicide, that there was a substantial amount of mental illness in our family. They didn't want to hear from me. They were not interested in what I had to say. They cut me right off and told me that this is, you know, not my place. This is, they, they really are not allowed to be having this conversation with me. How messed up is that? I mean, this was, this was information that was crucial to my brother's well-being and care. And, I, and the sad epilogue to that is he did get out of jail ultimately, and six months later, he died. Well, I'm so sorry um, to hear that now and, and obviously reading it in your book. Um, it's, it's sad. So I, my next question was going to be, how has the system either failed you or supported you? So clearly that's one right. way the system failed you. Yeah. But are there other ways you feel the system has failed or supported you? Yeah, I will chalk that up as a great big fat failure for sure. Yeah. Um, and there have been, uh, yeah, I think my sister Nancy, who also died by suicide, that again, we were we just, this is so many years ago, but we just didn't have the language. We didn't know how to talk about it. We were not, there was no such thing as family therapy after she died. Uh, nobody ever came to talk to us as a family. We didn't have these conversations about our ability to process the grief of losing a sister and in such a sudden and violent way. So um, that was, you know, that was very unfortunate. Um, schools, the schools didn't pick up on that either. Nobody, we weren't offered any 
kind of services there. The Catholic Church that I love and and hold dear and am a you know, fervent member of, they fell flat back in the day. Um, there was nervousness about whether or not my sister would be able to have a, a funeral. Now, they've improved greatly. There's a lot of good services that the Catholic Church now provides to families with mental health issues and, and, and suicide. But, um, but yeah, there, there are still very many barriers to care. Uh, and I think primarily, well, certainly for those people suffering from mental illness, but expanding to the families because the families are, are greatly affected. Absolutely. Have you seen innovation, hope, or promise uh, in this space, uh, considering your years of experience? Yes, I have. I've seen a lot, which is fantastic. I just was down in, in Chicago yesterday and, and talking with a woman who is a, an a mental health attorney, and she was talking about the now the burgeoning um, area of mental health courts. Uh, so people who commit crimes by virtue of their mental illness, that was the cause that's what caused them to to do these acts that they're now being um, adjudicated for. So that's awesome to know that that there is uh, there are greater ways to address uh, the criminal nature of of mental illness. Um, I I think also again these these family support group meetings and and education. My daughter uh, is works uh, for a college in Boston that focuses on her, her whole job is to identify students who are struggling and to get them into care. I think there's a lot of focus now on reaching out to struggling students. So very, very grateful for that. Thank you. Thank you. I agree with you. I do feel hope. I feel that, um, really as a result of COVID people have been much more, it feels like people have been much more open to talk about their mental health. And, and clearly there's a lot of in innovation, including a lot of major transformation that has gone on in Milwaukee County and in other places across the country where I can feel this hope um, for, for better days coming for those struggling uh, with mental illness. Sure, I think at, at co when, when COVID epidemic hit, I just remember having this sen sense that this is a tragedy, certainly, but I think it's going to engender in people mm. that empathy, and that—that's I, I'm told that you know people who who describe what it's like to live with persistent chronic mental illness talk about isolation and fear and loneliness, and that's what I think people in COVID times came to appreciate. So I believe that there is a greater understanding or empathy. Great, that's awesome. Thank you, thank you. That completes round two. In round three, we're going to talk about the importance of advocacy and how everyone can play a role in bettering mental health care for all. Are you ready for round three? Yep. Here we go. Let's go, champ. <laughs> we're going to talk about advocacy. Uh, what three things need to change in our system to better address mental health care today? What three things need to be uh, changed in our system? Okay, well. I'm going to be a little repetitive here, but I do think conversations. So learning how to talk to somebody who is not mentally well and saying to them, how can I help you? What are you feeling? I think we need to uh, be comfortable having those conversations. It's not easy. You know that. And, and to, to, to bring out in the person 
uh, just have them be able to trust you and to say, are you not, are you feeling not safe? How can I get you help? I'm going to sit with you until you are feeling better. So number one, mm-hmm. having those conversations. Awesome. Yeah. Number two, I think we need to um, provide those services. So um, making sure that uh, there are enough doctors, enough mental health professionals, that's not easy. It's expensive. Uh, the, and that brings to number three, which is uh, advocating for greater resources, both in, in terms of um, funding more students going through medical school students of color especially, uh, we need to have mental health providers who look like the people who are suffering. They can't all be one color or one gender. Uh, we need diversity of experience, life experiences. Uh, so, so get out there and demand better care. See it through that lens of discrimination and, and get riled up. Uh, yeah. Get, get your Let's jabs. Let's get in there. Let's <laughs> get, get in there. Get your jabs and, and demand <laughs> that, that there's greater funding for Absolutely. services. You know, I think about that and I think about Medicaid reimbursement specifically. So you might have a person that has Medicaid and needs services today. Yeah. They're in crisis. But that person might not find a therapist or an available therapist for up to a year. And if that person's in crisis now, they need help now. They can't wait a year, uh, but because of that reimbursement is so low, it presents a big challenge. So yeah. I wanted to hit on that. You know, in our sector, we serve individuals with Medicaid or no insurance, and we rise and try to provide them with services as soon as possible uh, because they can't wait. Right. Um, if you or I have a an emergency. We need it taken care of now. If Absolutely. it's a broken leg, we got to get to the doctor. It's got to be taken you care of now. You can't come in in four weeks. You no. cannot. No. You can't much less a year, right? Right. So uh, thank you for bringing that up. I, I, I um, you know, agree with you 100%. Um, the next question is, what will it take uh, for individuals, uh, businesses, government, communities to come together and demand that mental health care be treated equally uh, to primary care? Well, I think it's just taking taking stock, taking inventory of what their own life looks like. And I don't know anybody who doesn't have mental illness in their family. Do you? One in four individuals have a mental illness. So they're your neighbors. They're our friends. We are them. I mean, we We are them. Yes. Yeah. So I think uh, when people are willing to examine their life, consider how they've needed help and provide that help, to those that they love. That sounds very squishy, but uh, we need to constantly remind ourselves, people are in crisis, they need help, they need us. We are called to help each other. Absolutely. And it again, it really starts with leaders and individuals like you, both from your past and in writing the stories and bringing to light the challenges that, um, you know, in Milwaukee County, the. The, the challenges that we face, but also sharing, sharing your personal story and your courage uh, and your authenticity around that. I know that's not easy. And you, I, I read in your book, you know, you want to make sure your family's on board and sure. I'm sure lots of conversations happen. Yeah. I just need to give a little shout out to my brothers and sisters because it's one thing for me to write a book 
about what my life has been like, but for them to entrust me to, to have the, the, the courage really and the faith that I'm going to tell our family story in a, in a full-throated way. I mean, Hector, you know, you read it. I don't hold back. Yeah. And I tell... Were there any punches thrown in those <laughs> there conversations? No, shadows, shadow yeah. no, 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 no. But uh, yeah, my brother Billy did... Some bobbing and weaving. Yeah, there was a lot of bobbing and weaving, but my brother Billy did want me to mention that he won the free throw contest yeah. at his grade school. That. But that was the only demand that was made. But, That's beautiful. But in a serious way, it was they were very gracious in letting me tell this very intense personal story really with the hopes that that would inspire other people to come forward and talk about their lives and what they've been through. I'm sure it has and, and will. So thank you so much for doing that. Last question. Yeah. I asked all my guests these, yes. the final question. So in addition to your book and speaking, which I know you're doing a lot of, and congratulations on that, and maybe it'll be a bestseller uh, soon. But how are you going to use that punching power uh, in uh, to advocate for our sector uh, over this next year. Yeah, I, well, that I have a great opportunity to do that because this book has provided me that platform. So I intend to make full use of it. And really, there's no crowd too small. I get I'm I'm getting amazing emails from people right now who've read the book and are reaching out to say you told my story. So I'm happy to have these conversations. That's why I wrote the book. I I wanted these. Uh, I wanted people to come forward and, and feel comfortable talking about what what they're going through. So that's what I'm going to do, Hector. Mm -hmm. I'm going to use the platform of this book to advance the message um, that we indeed need to love one another and care for one another, that your organization does every day in so many ways. And yeah, very, very, very grateful for the work that you do. Well, I want to keep <laughs> encouraging you to do that, my friend. Uh, you are a true knockout and you go out there and you keep knocking them out. So uh, thank you so much yeah. for being here with me today. Sure. Thank you. Appreciate you. Thank you. Same right back at you. Again, I want to thank Meg for being in the ring with me today. This was an outstanding uh, episode. Uh, thank you so much, Meg. You know, I want to just summarize some of the key points that she shared. Um, when we talked about, she talked about inspiration in writing her book and just telling her story and that it should be safe uh, to talk about mental health. And it's really about breaking that shame, uh, she mentioned. And she shared that we're all broken at one, one point or part of our lives. And we talked about how one in four of us uh, has a mental illness. They are our friends. They are our neighbors. They are us. And so Meg really highlighted that. You know, she brought up a, a very interesting uh, concept about stigma. Uh, the fact from the root word coming from stigmata, uh, the stain of humanity. And she prefers to use the word discrimination because it's more focused. It shifts the burden on others versus the self. So I thought that was very enlightening and very insightful and something I'm, I'm going to keep thinking about as I talk about uh, stigma uh, in future episodes. Uh, she talked about system. She says we need a system. Uh, she talked about family, insurance, uh, healthcare providers, police, and courts. Um, and bottom line is she, did, she said we don't have a system. There's no coordination amongst these entities. And I would say that, uh, that that's 
for the most part, that's that's probably true. I think there's advancements and um, people talking about this more that there needs to be better coordination and some programs or initiatives that have started over the years that have improved. But clearly, we need to do a better job. And in her words, starting with the family. And so the family is, is a part of that system. And she gave us an example where when her brother um, Danny was in the hospital and she wanted to share with them a little background information so that they could better uh, address uh, Danny's needs uh, in a proactive way. And they didn't want to hear it. Uh, from the family, uh, didn't take into consideration anything they said. And she said that six months later, uh, Danny died. And so family can be a, an important resource and component as we're addressing uh, mental health care. And she made that very, very evident. We talked about early intervention and prevention. It's necessary. Where in the past, uh, we focus on a crisis a crisis happens, then there's intervention. Uh, a kid penetrates the criminal justice system, and they probably have a, they might have a mental health need. Then there's intervention. It's too costly. Oftentimes, it's too late. Why can't we do this more proactively? Early intervention and prevention. And that is something that she brought up. And we ended up with we ended our conversation with a sense of hope. And I asked her, what three things should be, we be working on uh, to, in order to advance more hope and discussion relating to how to better our mental health system? And she said, it starts with conversation. We got to have a conversation. Be willing to be public uh, about a conversation. Be authentic. And clearly, Meg um, is, is showed us the virtue of courage by getting out there and sharing her story. So I can give others hope and inspiration maybe to do the same. And she mentioned about we need more services and we need more staff. Uh, we need more doctors. We need more nurses. We need more social workers. We need more bodies getting into the field to serve those that are most in need. And we ended off with resources. Clearly, there's a need for targeted resources to address individuals that are falling through the cracks today. We talked about Medicaid, where Medicaid, a person could have Medicaid, but they might not be able to see a therapist for up to a year. If they have a broken leg, they need to see that doctor today. If they're in a mental health crisis, I would argue that they need to see that uh, mental health therapist today. And, um, and Meg uh, touched on that. So lastly, you know, she's going to use her punching power to continue to share her story. And I know that there are many in our audience that may be, vulnerable, may, may be hesitant in sharing their stories, but maybe now you have a little bit more hope. Maybe now you might have a little bit more comfort. So again, thank you, May. Um, uh, thank you so much uh, for your willingness uh, to, to share uh, your story. As always, you can find all of our interviews and on our website at lsswis.org slash in the ring. Subscribe on YouTube and LinkedIn and Twitter so you don't miss any of these important conversations in the future. Thank you once again to our in the ring sponsor, M3. We appreciate you so much. 
Uh, we love you and we thank you for all you've done for us and many organizations across the country. Con mucho cariño, with much affection. Bye.